Well, good morning. We're going to be in Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, if you want to go ahead and turn there, uh, as we continue our series on the outsiders. And uh, you'll notice uh, that we're going to be covering the healing of the demoniac. And, and just FYI, uh, that passage or this passage has no correlation to Independence Day. Um, that's not why I chose it. Uh, now, I, I think God needs to heal our country, no doubt. Um, but that's not what we're going to talk about today. Um, our focus today is going to be about how God loves and he pursues and he uses those uh, whom at times we would least expect. And this passage is a powerful reminder of that reality. And it's one of my favorite uh, Bible stories in scripture because there's so much powerful, convicting, and just beautiful truth here. Um, but before we, we dive in, I'd love just to, to pray again. I don't ever think you can pray enough. And so I would love for you just to take a moment, just silently, wherever you're at, and would you just, just ask God, would you say, God, would you teach me this morning? Would you speak to me? So just take a moment and do that. And then would you pray for me too and just ask that God would speak through me clearly? Well, Father, we love you and we trust you. Have your way this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, before we begin reading, uh, let me set the stage uh, for you, okay, before we dive into Mark chapter 5. If you go back to Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41, which is the text right before the one we're going to read, you're going to see the famous calming of the storm story. And what you'll read there is that Jesus and his disciples, they've been doing a bunch of ministry. Uh, It's been an intense day, and they're tired. And particularly, Jesus is worn out, and it's evening now. And Jesus says in chapter 4, verse 35, he says, let's go over to the other side of the sea, which is a significant statement when you begin to understand what's on the other side of the sea, which is what we're going to talk about today. Because what we're going to see in chapter 5, verse 1, that the intended destination that Jesus had his holy crosshairs on uh, was an area known as the Gerasenes. And this area had the reputation of being a place where, where runaway Jews and Gentiles escaped to. In other words, this was a place where the, where the crooks, the sinners, the outcasts, the hypocrites, and the despised would would flee to. Uh, these were people who wanted nothing to do with God. It was a place known for inhabiting uh, broken, filthy sinners, outsiders. And shockingly, Jesus says, let's go over there. And as you walk through the Gospels, one thing that just screams out on the pages is the extravagance of Jesus' love. It's what set him apart. It's what made him different. We read that he often dined with tax collectors and sinners. He extended grace and love towards prostitutes. He would touch those who were considered untouchable. He forgave evildoers who others thought didn't deserve to be forgiven. And the astonishing thing about Jesus is he didn't just preach at sinners, but he actively engaged with them. He didn't just remain in the synagogue and wait for people to come to him. No, Jesus was was willing to get outside of his church bubble and pursue those who others thought didn't deserve to be pursued. 
And that's why so many of us here, that's why we're enamored with Jesus, because he does the same thing with us. He actively pursues us despite all of the wicked things that we've seen, all the things that we've said and done. We're not worthy to be in the same room as Jesus, yet he invites us to take a seat at his table. It was the extravagant love of Jesus that drove him to want to go to the other side. And that should give us great hope this morning. Because if there was an area designated for sinners, that's where you and I would reside. And so this story is a story about us. And it's a story about our Savior who pursues the outsider. And so we read in chapter 4, Jesus and the disciples, they get on a boat and they start making their way to the other side of the sea. Yet as the story goes, while they're on the boat, this fierce storm comes upon them and pretty quickly things start to get out of hand. The storm gets so bad that the disciples literally think they're about to die. And Jesus is super concerned, so concerned that he decides to take a nap. Storm comes, boat is sinking, disciples are panicking, and Jesus is like, nap time. (laughs) Gotta love Jesus. And so the disciples, they wake him up, and they're like, what's wrong with you? Do you even care that we're about to die? And so Jesus wakes up, he yawns, and he looks at the sea, and he says three words. He says, hush, be still. And it says this roaring, intense sea becomes perfectly calm. And then the disciples start whispering to one another. They say, who is this man that even the winds and the waves obey him? And that's where we're going to pick up the story. It says this in chapter 5, starting in verse 1, if you want to read along. Then they came to the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, the man was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. And when the man saw Jesus from a distance... He ran up and bowed down before him, and he shouted with a loud voice, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For Jesus had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking the man, What is your name? And the man said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to implore Jesus earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. And the demons implored Jesus, saying, Send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Jesus gave them permission. And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them. And they were drowned in the sea. And the herdsmen ran away, and they reported it in the city and in the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind. The very man who had had the legion, and they became frightened. Those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine, and they began to implore Jesus to leave their region. And as Jesus was getting into the boat, 
the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. And Jesus did not let him, but he said to him, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And the man went away and he began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. Amen. Crazy story, right? All right, so much to unpack here. But what I want you to do is I want you to put yourself in the disciples' shoes and I want you to think about what they're going through as they get to the other side of the sea. Okay, we know that they had just had a near-death experience on the Sea of Galilee. They had just witnessed Jesus showcase his power over creation and they're still trying to wrap their minds around it. It's a lot to take in. And I want you to remember that when they go over to the other side of the sea, it was evening. So by the time they get to the other side, it's nighttime. And the text says that when they get off the boat, this crazy demon-possessed man who lives in the tombs, who has been screaming day and night, he starts running towards them in the middle of the night. And we find out in the Gospel of Luke that the man is also completely naked. So I want you to picture this, okay? At night, Okay, this naked, screaming, demon-possessed man comes running out of a graveyard straight towards you. I mean, this is like horror movie type stuff, okay? Like if I'm one of the disciples, I'd probably be like, Jesus, I'm out. Let's go back and do the storm thing again, okay? (laughs) The storm wasn't that bad. But I want you to consider the condition of this demon-possessed man. The text says that he lived among the tombs. Uh, To a Jew, touching a dead body would be considered a great defilement, meaning this was a defiled man. And then notice it says that the man could not be subdued. He had superhuman strength. He'd often been bound with shackles and chains, and he would just bust through them. This man was dangerous, and he was uncontrollable which is probably why he was living amongst the tombs. You see, the community had probably tried to contain him. They had tried to fix him, but they couldn't. And so they drove him out. And then the text says that day and night, the man screamed among the tombs and he gashed himself with stones. I mean, this man is clearly in deep agony. Uh, The inward turmoil going on in this man's soul seems like it's too much to bear. Uh, We don't know for sure, but it looks like the man could be suicidal. Regardless, it's obvious that the man hates who he is and he wants out. He wants to end the pain and suffering that he's experiencing. I mean, it's hard to think deeply about this without getting choked up because this man is so utterly broken. He's so broken. And this man, church, is a visible picture of what Satan wants to do to you and I. John 8, 44 says, Satan is a murderer. He's the father of lies. That's his native tongue. 1 Peter 5, 8 says that the devil prowls around like a lion, seeking those to destroy. That's who he is. His aim is to deface, defile, and destroy those created in the image of God. That's what he does to this man, and that's what he's doing still today. Misery is Satan's end game. And we've got a lot of miserable people in our society right now, church, because apart from God, there is no lasting life. And that's what we see here with this man in Mark chapter 5. He's as miserable as miserable can be. 
But then something happens that turns his life upside down. And it's something that should give you and I great hope. And it's this, the man meets Jesus. The man meets Jesus. Despite all the evil, power, and misery that exists in this man, the text says when, when he sees Jesus, the man runs to meet him. And when he gets to Jesus, he, he bows and falls down at his feet. And so the natural question is, like, like what's going on here? Hey, like, why would this demon-possessed man react in this way? Well, I think there's two plausible reasons why he does so. And personally, I don't think it's an either-or type of thing. I think it's a both-and. The first possible reason that he does this is this could be a desperate attempt by the man to get help. Uh, perhaps he had heard stories about Jesus, and this was his cry for help. I remember this one year I was teaching eighth grade English uh, at a school here in the city. And I'll never forget, I was teaching the class, and there's this one girl. Um, she was sitting down at her desk, and she was laying on her arm. And she had this jacket on, but she had pulled her jacket up to her elbow. And you couldn't help but notice there was cut after scar after cut after scar after cut on her arm. Uh, the girl didn't even try to hide it. I don't think she wanted to. I think that was the point. And I could read it in her eyes. She was saying, don't you see? I don't like who I am. I'm miserable right now. And I need some help. Uh, for some of you listening, you can relate with that. Maybe it's not as blatant as that. Maybe it's much more subtle. Uh, but deep down, you can relate with the brokenness of this man. You can relate with the emotional turmoil because there's so much anguish in your soul right now. The U.S. Census Bureau recently found that a third of Americans are showing signs of clinical anxiety or depression, which has led to an increase in suicide as well as an increase in risky behaviors such as binge drinking and drug use. We've got a lot of hurting people in our society right now. And we've got a lot of hurting people in our churches too. And I want to pause real quick just to address something that I think is really important. And it's this. Um, if you're currently struggling with suicidal thoughts, or if you feel trapped right now because of your depression and anxiety, let me first tell you this. God loves you. He loves you. And if you're a believer in Christ and you're struggling in this way, um, let me remind you that your identity is in Christ. Um, you are not a weak Christian just because you struggle with mental health. No, you're a normal Christian who is struggling with your brokenness. But you're not less than others just because you struggle in this way. That's the first thing. Uh, the second thing is this. If you're struggling in this way, please do not fight alone. Meaning that if we are hurting inwardly in these ways, then we need to initiate help. But in the same breath, uh, as the body of Christ, we should all be looking around and seeking ways to come alongside our hurting brothers and sisters. Meaning all of us should be seeking ways. How can we lean in? How can we learn more so that we can love others with the love of Christ? That is our purpose as the church. Because there are certain burdens in this life that we are not meant to carry by ourselves. And suicidal thoughts and clinical depression are some of those burdens that should not be carried alone. We've got to do this together. 
But I also want to encourage those struggling with mental health to consider going to a Christian therapist or a counselor. Um, My personal opinion, like I wish everybody would go see a Christian counselor because I all think we have baggage that we need to work through. Just some of us are really good at masking it, okay? Um, But some of those people are really trained to help us work through some things. And so I want to encourage you, if you're here and you're struggling deeply with some of these things, email us and we'll send you a list of recommended counselors in the city. But lastly, okay, for some of you, you may be struggling with these things because you don't have a relationship with Jesus. You don't know him. And so let me fast forward real quick to the end of my sermon and tell you this. Jesus came to set people like you free. He came and he died on a cross and he rose from the dead for people just like you because he loves you. He loves you. And what the resurrection promises us is that there is new life in Christ, new life that is possible for you. In Matthew 11, verse 28, Jesus says, Come to me, all all you who are weary and heavy burden, and I will give you rest. That's the promise that we have in Christ Jesus. So if you're struggling this morning, let me plead with you, cry out for help. Cry out for help. And that's one possible reason that the demon-possessed man came and fell at the feet of Jesus. The second possible reason the demon-possessed man reacts in this way is because the demons inside of him are naturally submitting to a higher authority. Because as angelic beings who have rebelled, they've seen Jesus before, they know who he is and they know that they are no match to him. Uh, Growing up, uh, my family had this uh, golden retriever named Dusty. And, uh, and Dusty was notoriously known as being just an incredible escape artist, okay? Um, it was truly amazing. Uh, we tried every trick in the book to try to keep this dog contained in the backyard. We'd tie him up. Uh, we'd put him in a pen. Um, it did not matter, okay? He would get out. We, we eventually resorted to one of those electrical shock systems that you put around the perimeter of your yard, you know what I'm talking about? Okay, so then if you got close to the gate, it'd shock him a little bit, okay? Uh, well, this dog was, was, was crazy. And so he, he figured out that if the gate was left open, if he ran full speed, okay, he would get shocked, but it was only for a second, okay? <laughs> and then he was free, so that's what he'd do. Gate would be open, he'd go, he'd get shocked, he'd keep running, Okay? And then me and my siblings, we'd be chasing that, that dog all over the neighborhood, trying to get him to come back home to no avail. <laughs> but then the crazy thing is, my dad would get home. And no joke, he'd stand by the gate. He would call that dog's name. And that dog would come running home. And he would sit at my dad's feet because he knew who the true boss was. Um, let me say this, I, I, don't, I don't know a ton about the angelic realm. I'm not an expert when it comes to demons, but one thing I do know is that when push comes to shove, the demons know who the boss is. Uh, Jesus is the alpha dog, and that's what you see here. The demons see Jesus, and they say, oh, no, we know you. And so they fall at his feet, and they begin shouting at Jesus. They literally beg Jesus to have mercy And they referred to Jesus as the son of the most high God. And they beg him not to torture them. You know, it's interesting. If you read the gospels, you'll notice that there's all sorts of confusion 
when it comes to the personhood of Jesus, okay? Like his, his family at times thought he was crazy. Okay, the Pharisees thought he was demon-possessed. You can read the disciples are often unsure and they're wrestling. And the only ones who consistently get it right in the New Testament are the demons. <laughs> because they know who he is. They've seen him before. They know what he's about. And they know they're no match for him. Yet they refuse to bow down and worship him as Lord. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, Jesus talks about a future day that is to come, a day when he's going to return and set up his kingdom here on earth. And he says this about that day. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It's a sobering reminder for us, isn't it? The question for us shouldn't be, do I believe in Jesus? Even the demons believe in Jesus. The question should be, is Jesus my Lord? Is he my Savior? Is he my friend? Do I know him? Do I know him? Saving faith should result in a relationship with Christ. That doesn't mean we don't struggle. That doesn't mean we don't doubt and have hard times. But if you're sitting here and you're like, you know what? I have never, ever, I could never say that I've had a relationship with Christ. Then I want to ask you this morning, would you consider calling upon Jesus to save you of all of your sins? That was me summer before college. I grew up in a Christian home. I knew a lot about Jesus. I knew a lot about the gospel, but I didn't know Jesus. And I didn't know the gospel. And if that's you this morning, we'd love to talk to you more about that. But I want to promise you, if you will call out to God and say, God, I need you. I'm a sinner. I'm broken. I want to know you. Jesus, you died for me. You rose from the dead. I accept that. I promise you, God will move in your life because he wants a relationship with you. He wants one with you. So will you consider doing that today? Will you consider crying out to Jesus? There's grace for you. But the text goes on to say, that Jesus starts asking the unclean spirit to come out of the man. And Jesus was asking him, what is your name? And the demon-possessed man gives an eerie response. He responds with a plural name. He says, my name is Legion. If you don't know what a legion is, a legion is a Roman term in order to signify a military unit of two to 6,000 soldiers, meaning that this poor man had thousands of demons working together as a cohesive unit inside of this man. We're not told uh, how they got a hold of this man's life. A typically unclean spirits get a foothold in the lives of people who cultivate sinful practices, which is another reason why we shouldn't play games with sin. Sin is not a game. Sin is about war. It's a war between the kingdom of darkness led by Satan and the kingdom of light led by Jesus. And you're never going to experience the life that you are meant to experience until you realize that life is war. And the only way to experience victory is by fighting alongside Jesus. But the text goes on to say that these demons implored Jesus not to be sent out of the country. 
They clearly did, did not want to leave the area. They say, send us into the swine. You see, when, when sin enters your life, church, it has no plan on leaving. Sin has no intention of stopping by for a visit. No, when sin enters your life, it starts setting up camp. It wants to make its home in your life. Its plan is to reside there permanently, and its intent is to conquer your life. So these demons, they ask to be sent into the swine. And surprisingly, Jesus grants them permission. And we get a very powerful and and visual picture of these demons' intentions. And I want you to picture this. Okay, it says that once Jesus grants them permission, that immediately the demons enter the swine, thousands of pigs, and they start running together off of a cliff. And one by one, they fall into the sea and drown to their death. And I want you to notice, who kills the pigs? One Jesus. It was the demons. Because you see, church, Satan is a murderer. That's what he does. And it's a potent reminder of Romans 6, 23, which says the wages of sin is death. A reminder that a day is coming, church, when every wrong is going to be made right and where every form of evil is going to be destroyed because Jesus is coming again. In Mark chapter 4, we see Jesus' power over creation. In Mark chapter 5, we see his power of the spiritual realm. And through the resurrection, we see that Jesus has power over sin and death. There is power in the name of Jesus. Amen? I don't know what you're going through right now. I don't know how you're struggling. But what I do know is Jesus has the answer. He's a healer. That's what he does. He's a healer. That's the only option for those of us who are in Christ. We will be healed whether in this life or in the life to come. That's what our God does for those who trust in him. Yet after the unclean spirit is cast out of this poor man, the story takes a dramatic and disappointing turn in verses 14 through 17. It says some herdsmen, probably those taking care of the pigs, witnessed everything, and they ran away to town in order to report it. And then these people from the nearby towns, they come to Jesus, and they see this violent uncontrollable maniac clothed, seated, and in his right mind. And the text says that they became frightened. It's the same word that is used of the disciples right after Jesus calmed the storm in Mark 4. For the disciples, this fear drove them towards Jesus. For the townspeople in the story, this fear drove them away from Jesus. Because these people thought to themselves, man, if this person has this much power, what other demands might he make? What else might he ask of me? You see, the swine were a valuable part of the economic system, and Jesus just wrecked it. So they became fearful, and they started thinking, what else might he wreck of ours? And now we get a glimpse of why Jesus chose to go to this area in the first place. Because now we see these people, their value system is all messed up. A miserable man has just been set free and all they can think about is how their money is now gone. So they implore and they beg Jesus to leave their region. It's no different today, church. Uh, For some, 
they love their things and they love their life too much to follow Jesus. And they're too frightened of what they might have to give up. Yet it was Jesus who said, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what good will do a person if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? In one of C.S. Lewis's famous books, Weight of Glory, he says the following in one of his most popular quotes. He says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. What about you, church? Where's your joy? Where's your allegiance? Are you far too easily pleased, forsaking the joy that could be yours? There's joy for you this morning. Will you take it? Will you take it? Because for the person who truly gets a taste of the joy that's found in Christ, they will gladly lay down everything to follow him. And that's what this healed man does. The story ends with a beautiful picture of the gospel. This miserable man has been set free. And notice, I want you to notice this. After encountering Jesus, this man goes from being naked to clothed. From chaos to peace. From screaming to quietness. From enemy of God to friend of God. From menace to society to messenger of deliverance. That's the gospel And that's what happens when you encounter Jesus. And naturally, this man wants to follow him and accompany him on his journey. But Jesus surprisingly says, he says, no, I've got other plans for you. You're going to go back home. And you're going to report of the great things that I've done for you and the mercy that I've shown you. And we see that the man worshipfully obeys and he goes back to Decapolis. Decapolis is a Gentile area of 10 cities all in one, one place. And it's neat because archaeologists have uncovered a plethora of early church remnants in the area. And it's fun to wonder that perhaps these early churches were as a result of this man's story. Some scholars will say that this is the first commissioned missionary in the New Testament. A miserable, violent, suicidal, demon-possessed outsider. This man didn't have a Seminary education, probably wasn't raised in a religious home, didn't have a bunch of Bible verses memorized, but he had a story to tell. He said, I was lost, but now I'm found. I was dirty, but now I'm clean. I was miserable, but now I have joy. And Jesus knew how powerful that story would be Because you see, Jesus never saves you just to save you. He always has a purpose. There's always a mission attached to your salvation. And so what about you, church? What's your story? How has God rescued you? Where is your Decapolis? Uh, Early in Rachel and I's marriage, uh, I was interning with a college ministry at a church, and we were asked to lead a six-week mission trip to China 
And so we took a team of 15 students. We stayed in some international student dorms in China, a place where there are 10 universities all into one. And what we would do is we would take classes in the morning, take language classes. And then in the afternoon, we were horrible students. We didn't study at all, and we'd go meet students. <laughs> and then our hope is that we would get to know some students and form a relationship with them so that we could share the gospel. Uh, but I remember this one day, uh, we had this marketplace underneath our dorm, and I went down there to get a snack. And it went down, I couldn't help but notice, but there's this, uh, this Chinese college student guy, he was standing off a ways, and he was just looking at me with this big smile on his face. <laughs> and uh, it made me a little uncomfortable, thought it was a bit odd, and so eventually he just kept smiling, so I just walked up to him. <laughs> I was like, hey, how's it going, man? Um, and he said, hey, are you American? I said, yeah, I'm American. He said, cool, can we be friends? I said, sure, I guess. Um, He said, can we have a talk? I said, yeah, we can have a talk. And so we went over to this bench and we sat down and he started to tell me his story. Um, And he told me at the beginning, he said, something told me in my head that I needed to talk to you. Something told me in my head that, that you had the answer to one of my questions. And I raised my eyebrows a little bit. I was like, well, it depends on your question. Okay. And he told me, he said, hey, when I was a young boy, I was playing at home and accidentally I, I ran through a glass door and it cut open my head. And I had to go to the hospital and they gave me stitches. And then he pulled his hair off of his forehead and there was a big scar in the shape of a cross on his forehead. And he then looked at me and he smiled. He said, I think this is from the God. He said, but I don't know what it means. True story. (laughs) I'm sitting there looking around. I start, I'm like, there's got to be some Chinese FBI agents somewhere, okay? I thought, I'm about to go to jail, okay? (laughs) But I look around, didn't find any. And so I I sat down with them and and I shared the gospel with them and I told them that God loves them. And I said, the meaning of that cross on your forehead is because there's a God who loves you so much that he left his throne in heaven, he came to earth and he died for sinners like you and me. And he rose from the dead so that you could have a new life. And his eyes beamed. And he looked at me and he said, that's the God that's been chasing me my entire life. And so we prayed and he accepted Christ as his savior. And after we got done praying, he hugged me. And he said, can I go tell my girlfriend about Jesus? I said, yeah, you can tell your girlfriend. He said, what about my family? Can I tell my family about Jesus? I said, yeah, you can tell your family. He said, what about my friends? Can I tell my friends about Jesus? I said, yeah, you can tell everybody. And I commissioned that young man to go and tell of the great things that the Lord had done for him and the mercy that he was shown. Because once he tasted the grace of God, he naturally wanted to share it with others. That's what God does when he saves you. It's never just to save you. There's always a mission attached to your salvation. So let me ask you again, church. What about you? What's your story? How has God rescued you? And where's your decapitalist? And that's what I want us to reflect on as we come to the communion table. Um, If you're joining us online, you haven't gathered your elements, go do so now. Uh, If you're here and you forgot to grab communion elements, raise your hand real high. 
and we'll have someone bring it to you. Um, and for the rest of you, what I want you to do, you can go back, you can go ahead and peel back those layers. There's that top layer with the bread, and there's that other layer for the juice. And what I want you to do is I want you to take a few moments. And before we take the bread and before we take the juice, I want you just to consider what God might be trying to show you. And I want you to ask him, say, God, how can I be obedient? Like, how can I honor you right now? What are you calling me to do? And I want you to boldly ask that prayer. And do that silently. And after a few moments, we'll come together and we'll take communion together, okay? So let's do that right now. Church, when Jesus saves you, it's never just to save you. There's always a mission attached to your salvation. I want you to think about that as we take this bread, as we drink this cup. Jesus died for your sins, church. He spilled everything for you. And all that he asks us is that we would worship him, that we would obey him, that we would love him, and that we would share the great news of the gospel with others. As we take the bread, we remember his body that was broken for us so that we could have new life, church. Church, the body of Christ, take and eat. As we drink the juice, we remember the blood that was shed for us. Christ had to be paid for sin. As sinners, we deserve to be on that cross. We deserve eternal separation from God. But God said, no, I'm coming for the outsider. I pursue the outsider. That's my heart. And that's why he went to the cross, so that you could be made new. Don't you ever forget that, church. And all God asks is that you would take the gospel and you would worship him for the rest of your life, that you would experience joy with him and that you would share of the great news with everybody. So church, the blood of Christ take and drink would you pray with me Father God we come before you once again broken at times unfaithful hurting anxious doubtful but God we remember the cross We remember the blood that was shed and we're reminded that you love us. And God, as we think about the resurrection, we're reminded again that you are doing something about our sin. 
you're doing something about brokenness. And so we come before you again right now. We ask, God, would you give us faith? Would you give us strength? Help us to live as faithful witnesses in a lost world. We need your help. We give you the glory, God. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.